Welcome to Inspiration from American History with Rebecca Price Janney. Today's story is called Heaven on Earth. Long ago and far away at a Methodist camp meeting, a 10-year-old Ohio boy went forward at the invitation and made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Afterward, he said his greatest ambition in life was to be a true, earnest, and consistent Christian. Along the way, he also achieved one of the supreme honors this world can give, the Presidency of the United States. At his March 4, 1897 inauguration, William McKinley told his audience, I assume the arduous and responsible duties of President of the United States, relying upon the support of my countrymen and invoking the guidance of Almighty God. Our faith teaches that there is no safer reliance than upon the God of our fathers, who has so singularly favored the American people in every national trial, and who will not forsake us so long as we obey his commandments and walk humbly in his footsteps. As the sands of the 19th century ran out, the President felt confident about America's prospects for the new epoch. At the outgoing of the old and the incoming of the new century, he said, American liberty is more firmly established than ever before. It seemed nothing was to be impossible for the new nation in the new century. Of all the believers in the progress to come, none seemed more confident than theological liberals. Yet it didn't take long after January 1, 1900, for their hopes to suffer multiple setbacks. On September 5, 1901, President McKinley stood at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, greeting well-wishers when a young man named Leo Cholgosh approached him. Wielding a pistol he'd concealed under a handkerchief, he fired twice. The first bullet nicked the president's shoulder, but the second one penetrated his stomach, colon, and kidneys. Cholgosh was a disgruntled anarchist, part of a popular movement well-known in Europe that had its own vision for the new century. They devoted themselves to doing away with government and what they believed were elitist leaders in order to establish a more new equitable order of society. In the midst of the crisis in Buffalo, President McKinley kept his Christian composure, urging his protectors not to hurt his assailant and reciting the Lord's Prayer as he went under anesthesia for emergency surgery. At first it seemed he would fully recover, and the tense nation breathed a little easier as its people waited and prayed. But several days later, McKinley's health began to fail as gangrene swept through his body. He was to become the first American leader to be assassinated in the 20th century. Most Americans were convinced that McKinley had gone to heaven, 
but they still had profound grief and sorrow over his tragic passing. Echoing the feelings of so many, Theodore Roosevelt told his close friend Henry Cabot Lodge how hard it was to believe that such a terrible thing could have happened in that progressive day and age. Yet it had happened. The murder of William McKinley by an avowed anarchist was truly the opening shot of the new century. The progress in science and technology that so many observers anticipated did come, and the developments, many that emerged right in 1900, eventually would change everyday life forever for the masses. Many Americans were already enjoying the benefits of electricity, automobiles, photography, and motion pictures, which provided entertainment for about 30 million of them weekly. Their family unit was stable, and divorce was rare. There was every reason to believe the 20th century would be a time of unprecedented human advancement. Theological liberals continued to hope that the kingdom of God would come through social action, while Christians of orthodox and traditional convictions believed saving souls from hell would result in a changed culture. There was, however, a very different movement afoot in American Christianity, one with roots in the very first century A.D. It began on January 1, 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, when Agnes Osman, a student at Bethel Bible College, received a gift of the Holy Spirit straight out of Acts chapter 2, speaking in a language she couldn't understand. Most of the other students at Bethel also began speaking in tongues, as the phenomenon was called. Gifts of healing and prophecy followed. Small-scale revivals spread to other places in the next four years, including Texas, North Carolina, and Minnesota. One man who hungered and thirsted for this new manifestation of the living God was a son of former slaves, the Reverend William J. Seymour. In 1906, a woman who visited Seymour's church in Houston invited him to speak to her congregation in Los Angeles. Initially, things went poorly because the elders charged that he had not yet spoken in tongues and was therefore unqualified to lead them in worship. Once Seymour and his small group of followers moved to a private home, however, he did speak in tongues, and a fresh wave of revival broke out. Moving to a bigger venue at 312 Azusa Street, the congregants began to welcome 300 to 1,500 people at a time who came from a variety of ages, ethnic, and social backgrounds. At those meetings, if a person felt led by the Holy Spirit to speak, he or she spoke, regardless of social or theological pedigree. This was the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement, named after the events of Acts 2, when on the day of Pentecost, followers of Jesus began to speak in other languages, and about 3,000 people from around the known world were added to their fellowship. 
Like many other evangelical Christians, early 20th century Pentecostals maintained that a person had to repent of his sins and be baptized to newness of life in Christ. This was how one gained heaven and avoided hell. They regarded heaven and hell as literal places, both of them eternal, and looked forward to the second coming of Jesus. They promoted a strong moral code as well as the authority of Scripture. Where they parted ways with other evangelicals was mostly in the arena of the miraculous, of signs and wonders, like healings and prophecy. Pentecostals believed that those gifts did not end with the death of the first apostles, but continued to the present time. It's been widely reported that just before the worshippers moved to Azusa Street, a young person prophesied that a terrible earthquake was going to strike. Whether the prophecy was ever made is debatable, but if it was, the Pentecostals would have regarded it as a verification of God's mighty hand at work among them. The earthquake itself was a further blow to all who believed that the 20th century was going to be heaven on earth. The April 18, 1906 quake was estimated at a 7.7 on the Richter scale, with some saying it may have been as high as 8.3. When it rolled through the city, fires broke out, resulting in the worst urban inferno in U.S. history. Berkeley professor H. Moore Stevens called it one of the greatest conflagrations ever known. The fire seethed for three days before they spent themselves, resulting in the destruction of 490 city blocks, homelessness for a quarter of a million people, and the deaths of between 450 and 700 souls. Estimates of the damage surpassed $350 million. Human achievement and advancement, no matter how impressive, had not been able to prevent the cataclysm. By 1910, McKinley's assassination and the San Francisco earthquake were becoming distant memories. More sanguine observers of the American scene, including increasing numbers of secular modernists, continued to hope that the 20th century would be a golden age in human history. Of them, D.A. Carson says, in its most optimistic form, modernism held that ultimately, knowledge would revolutionize the world, squeeze God to the periphery, or perhaps abandon him to his own devices, and build an edifice of glorious knowledge to the great God science. Perhaps the proudest human achievement of all was a fantastic new ship that appeared on the scene in 1912, a luxury vessel that would dwarf a modern airplane. Shipbuilder magazine called it practically unsinkable. In A Night to Remember, Walter Lord said that a deckhand, trying to soothe the fears of one passenger, told her not even God could sink her, but sink she did. According to James Gallion, despite the absolute faith that some had in science and technology at the beginning of the 20th century, the Titanic struck an iceberg on Sunday, April 14th at 11.40 p.m. 
Having been lauded as the safest ship ever built, the Titanic carried only 20 lifeboats, not enough to accommodate even half of her 2,200 passengers and crew. Less than two hours after striking the iceberg, the Titanic sunk. That morning of April 15th, the Carpathia rescued 705 survivors. 1,522 passengers and crew had been lost. It came as a surprise to some that, unlike God, modern technology was not infallible. In February 1914, there were more than 30 organizations in the United States promoting world peace. Industrialist Andrew Carnegie was so optimistic, he created a $2 million endowment for a church peace union with a directive for alternate use of the funds if peace did become fully established. On June 28th, Carnegie's dream began to unravel in distant Sarajevo. The Archduke Francis Ferdinand, heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was on a state visit with his wife, the Duchess Sophie Chotek. As they rode in an open car, a Serbian student opened fire, killing them both. Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, followed by Russia's military mobilization. Germany declared war on Russia, then on Russia's ally France. When Germany invaded Belgium, England declared war on Germany. Europeans initially met the war with much chest-thumping. They believed that the troops would be home by Christmas, but the traditional war strategy of massed infantry charges supported by artillery failed in this new era. Instead, entire nations mobilized their resources and hurled them at one another. Industrialization had changed the technique of war so that man was now the slave, not the master of the weapons he had created. Machine guns, poison gas, airplanes, tanks, and submarines. Americans largely desired to remain neutral in the conflict. It seemed a localized affair, and the United States hadn't yet become a true world power. Over the next three years, however, they watched in alarm as Europe ravaged itself. By 1915, two and a half million Russian soldiers were dead, along with 20% of the country's civilians. In 1917, when the continent seemed on the brink of either a communist takeover or total destruction, the United States entered the war. In his address to Congress, President Woodrow Wilson said, The world must be safe for democracy. At the time of the armistice, November 11, 1918, a total of 20 million people had been wounded and thousands of them maimed by the new weapons of mass destruction. 10 million Europeans had died, 6,000 for each day of the war. 116,516 Americans had lost their lives and another 204,000 had been wounded. The material losses were so astronomical as to be inconceivable. 
The war had involved 30 sovereign states and brought about the end of the Russian, Ottoman, German, and Habsburg empires. France lost half of its men between the ages of 20 and 32. Of those who served from England's Oxford University, 20% died. Europe's future was impoverished. Pat Robertson was right when he referred to the war as four years of terror and carnage beyond anything the human mind could have imagined, certainly not the minds of those who anticipated that the 20th century would be heaven on earth. Thank you for joining me for Inspiration from American History. I'm Rebecca Price Janney.